Great job, Bert. And Robin, on the keys. Robin, on the keys. Boy, if we ever had a band in this church, we could have it. We had three keyboard players. We got. I heard somebody over here sings like sounds like uh, Allison uh, Krauss. Her singing. We got Paul. Paul, you, you're a drummer, right? You're dr Freddie's a drummer. We know that. Yeah, very good. Do you play other instruments too? Yeah, that's what I heard. I heard you like like your dad was, right? Well, we would have a pretty wild band. I mean, you just imagine that, you know? You know, Robin and uh, you know Mary go like this, you know. <laughs> John the Baptist, you know. <laughs> All right. I don't know. Kirk, can you play tambourine? I can play anything. You can play anything. Of course. Why do I ask what he would say? Of course, I can play anything. Be the ball. Remember that? <laughs> Playing golf. He's like, I just willed it into the hole. Jeez, that sounds just like I would say. My dad would laugh because I say that kind of stuff. But he cracks me up. Yeah, I can play anything. Eh, no problem. Say I love that. No, no, no problem with confidence in him. All right. Um, Good to see you all here again. <laughs> you didn't all fly out the back door and say, get out of here. This guy's driving me crazy. Can't hear his voice. All right, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. If you haven't turned there already, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. All right, we're, uh, I, I can't wait to teach this, uh, this lesson. And um, because, as I said before the opening prayer at the first session, we're going to discuss. Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 15, whether it's historical, prophetic, or both, a little bit of both. So I'm going to go tell you what it is, and then I'm going to explain to you why it's this and not some other thing, okay? And I'll give you my reasons. And that is why one of the things I've tried to say before the opening prayer in the first session, I want my people to understand why they believe what they believe. Just because Dr. So-and-so, or Pastor Bill, or who, Colonel Team, or D.A. Carson, or whoever it is, just because they say it, that doesn't mean that they're not Jesus, you know. You know, when Jesus kept taught, taught in the apostles, okay, you can believe what they, you, you, can, you don't have to check those guys out, but they did. You know, the Nobereans checked out Paul. But I want you to understand why you believe what you believe. And so this is very important that we do this because... The, the interpretation is involved here, okay? And the interpretation, so how can we orient our lives if we don't really know what this passage is saying? Now, if you think it's historical or you just think it's eschatological, okay, we can, we can, uh, we can still derive some things out of it, absolutely, but um, I think we, what God wants us to do is use our minds that he gave us and understand what we're doing. So you can point out, and I'll give you my reasons, and I said before, you don't have to know the Hebrew and the Greek, you know, you, you just you could look at your modern translations and you're getting the word of God with the modern translations. I know I've been translating for over 30 years. I see what these guys do. I talk to some of these guys and they do a great job. And you, you, we're very blessed because we have a plethora of great translations. So I just say to, to, to all of us, you, with just your modern translations, there's certain principles, you pay attention to the context. Context is a big, big thing, literary context, but the context when we see a passage we want to understand the context, and that's how we get a, a proper interpretation. If we avoid the context, disregard the context, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. And when you get faulty interpretation, it leads many times to false doctrine. And false doctrine leads to bad behavior. So we want to stay away from uh, you know, all false doctrine has ever been. It's a faulty interpretation of the scriptures. Every single instance. Okay? So we want to avoid that. Because as uh, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy, 
you know, he wanted Timothy in the, in the, in the church at Ephesus uh, to uh, reflect, you know, God's holy standards, to uh, live in the will of God. But if false doctrine was in, in, in the issue and they were adhering to that, like the Judaizers in that context, that's going to lead to poor behavior. You're not going to be able to orient yourself to the will of God if you, were, if you interpret the Bible incorrectly. So, again, we'll be looking at in the second session is Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. Historical, prophetic, or both. Now, as we do before every second session, not only will we be praying for the, the, uh, this message and for our hearts here uh, to receive the message, but we also pray for the offering. So, with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you've given us the great honor and privilege to express our love and gratitude for all that you've done for us, all the, the wonderful spiritual blessings, unmerited spiritual blessings, and also logistical grace, grace blessings that we have, and the blessings in the temporal realm that are on top of the log logistical grace blessings, and all the wonderful things that we have in this country, and the freedoms that we have and the homes that we live in, and the cars that we drive, and the businesses that we have, and, and the jobs that we have, and the salaries that we have, and our families, everything, Father, and the bodies that we have, everything, our volition, everything comes from you, and everything is derived from you, Father. We have nothing without you. So this is a little time now that we've taken out to express our love and gratitude to you, your Son, Jesus Christ, and also the Holy Spirit. And I pray the Spirit would guide us in this offering so that we give according to your will. And we just thank you for those who are faithful uh, stewards of their, the treasure that you've given to them because you uh, require us to be good stewards with the finances that we have. So we just pray again this will reflect our love and be acceptable to you as we offer it in our Lord's name. I also pray, Father, for the second session and thank you for helping me in the first session and your people. I pray you do the same here in the second session. Help me to deliver the message with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. Help me to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction and uh, to concentrate. And also I pray for your people that the Spirit would do a mighty work through them. I pray that the Spirit would help them to learn, understand, and to carefully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting here in the second session so that they might make personal application. I also pray that not only all of us here in this room would be spoken to during the course of this message as individuals addressing our walk with you, but also all of us as a church, as a corporate unit. And again, Father, I thank you for the great honor and privilege that you give me to communicate your word to your people, Bible doctrine, and I just thank you, Father, so much for them and bringing them into my life. So, Father, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, you should be at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter again. And actually, we're going to go through the chapter, uh, verses 3 through 15, as we give you my explanation as to whether or not um, Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 15, is prophetic, historical, or a little bit of both. Okay? So before we begin, a study of verses 3 through 15, which I'm going to tell you, you're going to have a great time. It's kind of, it kind of shows, um, it kind of ties into what we're doing with the Day of the Lord on Wednesdays that we started a couple weeks ago. All right, because a lot of what we're going to be seeing, as we'll say, in verses 3 through 15 is, prophet, is prophetic and uh, also a little bit of his, uh, stuff that God's done in the past, as we'll say. But the 
prophecy is related to the 70th week of Daniel and, and also the second advent of Jesus Christ. This is called the Divine Warrior Psalm. It's a, it's a great doctrine, the Divine Warrior. It's throughout the scriptures. I mean, God wages war against Israel's enemies, but he also wages war against Israel at times. As we saw with the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, when they were disciplined by God, God was waging war against them. So the Divine Warrior Psalm, we see it at the end of the book, end of the Bible where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the God-man, the, the unique theanthropic person of history, Jesus Christ, comes and destroys Antichrist, the false prophet and the tribulational armies that are gathered together to wage war against him. They take their weapons off to each other, Antichrist and his armies, and uh, the, the armies of China and the Far East, and they point them at us, and particularly Jesus. And so finally, the world actually expresses violently their hatred of him. The illegal alien is coming. That's what they're looking for, and that's what they're going to get, and he's going to destroy them all. And he's the divine warrior. He's the greatest warrior, greatest military commander in history, better than Napoleon. Uh, Douglas MacArthur, I read stuff on him. Uh, Lee Grant, I read all those guys in their memoirs with uh, Grant, and uh, whatever it is, Alexander the Great, Caesar, I read his, his uh, Gaelic Wars. It doesn't matter who they are, Nebuchadnezzar, no one can stand next to Jesus Christ. He, when you hear the phrase, Lord of, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there's a genitive of subordination in there. You could translate it, King ruling over the kings and Lord ruling over the lords. So that's our God. That's who we're in union with, Jesus Christ. So it says in Habakkuk 3.1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shagayanoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand, where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth, and look, he looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. And the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress and the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. Salah. You split the earth with rivers and the mountains that saw you in rid. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot, Salah. With his own spear you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Then Habakkuk says, I heard and my heart pounded based on that revelation. My lips quivered at the sound and decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Through the fig tree, though the fig tree, does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive oil, olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, 
and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to the heights, go on the heights, for the director of music on my stringed instruments, that last line is telling us this is lyrics to a song. We've lost the music uh, to uh, history, but we have those lyrics. It's a psalm. It's a divine warrior psalm. So this passage in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, where we're going to ask, answer the question, is it historical, eschatological, meaning prophetic, or a little bit of both? And again, I'm going to give you my reasons why I think it's primarily eschatological with allusions to the deeds of God in the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you from your English Bibles that this is the case. And also bring out some things about the fact that a lot of expositors, are, there are expositors that do agree with me, okay? And there's now translations like the Net Bible that uh, will uh, deviate from the traditional translations. If you look at the Net Bible, it's quite interesting on the board, I'll give it to you. It says in verse 3, God comes from Teman, the sovereign one from Mount Paran, Salah. His splendor covers the sky. No, it's in the present tense, the word covers. Okay? The, the NIV, it has covered, past tense. So the Net Bible actually has a note on this. I, always, I highly recommend the Net Bible and uh, with many, the, the NIV as well. But this is very important because it's telling you there's a, 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 a difficulty with interpreting this. But as I said before, you as a layperson can see for yourself, and I'm going to point this out to yourself, that this truly is eschatological, talking about the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation portion of it, and the, the second advent to Christ. When Jesus Christ will, will wage war against this earth, the wrath of the Lamb, and Revelation chapters 5 through 18, we have the seven seal trumpet and bold judgments culminating in the second advent of Christ, where Jesus Christ will exercise his wrath, his, divine, his righteous indignation against the world that rejects him, a world that we're living in today, a world that we're reaching out with the gospel to f snatch people from the flames of eternal condemnation like God did for us. All right? So this passage has been called the divine warrior psalm, as I said to you. Because of why? Because of its imagery, which depicts the Lord God of Israel as waging war against his enemies on planet Earth and emerging victorious over them. Now, this, the interpretation problem centers again upon whether or not we should interpret this passage as historical, eschatological, or we could say prophetic, or both. Now, interpreting the passage historically would mean that it's referring to the mighty acts the Lord performed in the past on behalf of the nation of Israel, such as delivering the Exodus generation from the bondage of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. Now, the majority of expositors and translations uh, adhere to the historical interpretation. However, as I just pointed out to you, there are expositors today and now translations like the Net Bible which call this into question. Now, some believe that this passage should be interpreted as eschatological, in other words, prophetic. Eschatological, it's a word that we use in prophecy, that theologians use, as speaking of the future things. So the rapture is eschatological. It's imminent, it's future, okay? Tribulation period, 70th week of Daniel, uh, second advent of Christ, millennial reign, the heavens, new heavens and new earth, all eschatological, and it's under eschatology. All right, so when I say eschatological, I'm talking about prophetic. I'll use both, I'll interchange them. So some believe, again, that this passage, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, should be interpreted as eschatological, which would mean that this passage is referring to the 70th week of Daniel, 
when the Lord exercises his righteous indignation against the inhabitants of planet Earth by administering the seven-sealed trumpet and bold judgments recorded in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. Uh, let me just see if I have that, uh, uh, what do you call it, chart up here for you. I had it the other day when we did, um, when we did, uh, what do you call it, the, um, hold on, it's not the one. I have a PowerPoint slide I want to show you here, so if I could pull it up here, just give me a second to get it. Okay, here we go. All right, that was what I was looking for the other day with the day of Lord's Day. There we go. I, did, I, did, I worked on this chart for a long time, so that's the best artwork I can do, all right? So Daniel's 70th week, okay? The 70th week of Daniel, which ends with the second advent of Christ, is what we'll be seeing in this song, okay? So what is the 70th week of Daniel, okay? Uh, people know it by the tribulation period. That's kind of a misnomer because the tribulation part of the 70th week is the last three and a half years, okay? So Daniel's 70th week, it's, it's actually 490 prophetic years, okay? 400, it's 490 prophetic years. 483, equivalent to 69 weeks, has been fulfilled in history, okay? And that's verses 9, 24, and 25 have been fulfilled in history. So is verse 26, which talks about the, the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and that happened with the, the, Babylon, uh, the, uh, the Roman, Roman Empire in 70 AD with Titus, whose father was the great uh, general of Vespasian. And also, the crucifixion of Christ is prophesied in Daniel 9.26. So, 483 of these prophetic years have been fulfilled in history. And verse 26, which talks about the interval between the end of the 483rd prophetic week, year, okay, which is the 69th week, and also what precedes the beginning of the 70th week. So as you see, right now in the church age, this is where we are, in between the, the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. Now, the 70th week can't begin as we saw in previous classes, and we'll go through this in the day of the Lord in detail. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12 says that the Antichrist cannot appear until we're gone. Who's restraining him? Paul talks about that which restrains him. It's the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians was chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And so it says what holds him back and then who holds him back? Well, it's the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit through working through the church that is uh, preventing Antichrist from manifesting himself. Where the reason? When the rapture takes place, no longer will God, the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be localized in the body of believers as they are now. When that happens, see, the, only God can restrain evil. Once we're gone, there goes the Holy Spirit. Now, we know the Holy Spirit is everywhere present, but we're talking about localized in a body of believers. When that happens, there's going to be no believers on the earth for the first time in history. First time in history. So then the Antichrist can manifest himself. When he does, Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel. Daniel 9.27 talks about this, okay? And it, it's, uh, this, this starts the 70th week. It's seven-year period. So in the, the weeks in this passage, Daniel 9.24 through 27, and we're going to be going through this in detail in the next couple of weeks in our Day of the Lord series. It's seven years for, for a week, okay? It's equivalent to that. And then the 70th week, it's broken out into two periods. 
The first three and a half years are what we call like a Cold War. There's wars and rumors of war. Matthew 24. He's talking to that generation in Matthew 24. Then the last three and a half years starts with Antichrist breaking the treaty. There's two events that happen. And Daniel 9, 20 says, it talk, 27 it talks about abominations, plural. That's what the Hebrew says. Now, the first one Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. He talks about the Antichrist sitting down in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem between the cherubim and the, and the, and the rebuilt mercy seat. Okay? And he's basically mimicking God. That's an abomination. There's another one that Jesus talks about and Revelation 13 talks about where a false prophet will make an image of the Antichrist and make it come alive. That, Jesus says, when you see that, Matthew 24, if you, when you see that, you Jews living at this time, see that, standing in the holy place, leave the country. And that will be the final dispersion of the Jews in history. So, Though that abomination, where it's standing in the, in, in, the, in the holy place, Jesus makes reference to that, and then he tells the Jews that will be living during that day, run, okay? So that starts the last three and a half years. Another thing to understand, and we're going to talk about this in detail when we do the Day of the Lord, okay? Next couple of weeks. A Jew, it's according to the Jewish reckoned time. It's not a 365-day calendar that Daniel's talking about. It's a 360-day calendar. So there's leap years and stuff, okay? So you see this in Revelation, 1,260 days, okay? You see that? What's that equivalent to? Three and a half years. That is the tribulation portion. That's when the Armageddon campaign starts. In Revelation, and this is another thing we'll be looking at in the Day of the Lord series on Wednesday, the Armageddon campaign is not like Waterloo, pitched battle. It's a three-and-a-half-year campaign. It's, it's like World War II. Three and a half years long. It's a campaign. Revelation says that. Uses the word for campaign. So this Armageddon campaign begins when the Antichrist breaks that treaty. Okay? It ends with the second advent of Christ, which is all over the Old Testament. Zechariah 12 and 14. And you got uh, also uh, Revelation 19 and 20, of course. Okay? At that time of the second advent, which the divine warrior Psalm of Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 15, talks about, in, de in, in detail, at that time, Jesus comes back with the church and resurrection bodies, elect angels, tribulational martyrs and resurrection bodies, Old Testament saints and resurrection bodies, and he destroys them. He, he destroys the Antichrist, the false prophet. He also destroys the tribulation armies that are standing, waging war against him as he comes back. He will also remove every unbeliever from the face of the earth with the elect angels. That's the Matthew 25 passage. Sheep and goats thing. Ezekiel 20 talks about the, uh, him judging the Jews before he does that down in what we would call uh, Jordan today. Okay? So then when that happens, okay, so he also imprisons Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. And there's no more war now. He starts the kingdom. He's cleansed the earth. So that's the period we're talking about. The 70th week of Daniel, which starts with Antichrist making this treaty. He breaks the treaty in the middle of the 70th week, the seventh year period, the three and, a half, three and a half years, according to the Jewish reckoning of time, 1260 days. And it ends with the second advent of Christ. So that's the period we're talking about 
when we look at this psalm here, in Psalm chapter, uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses uh, 3 through 15. So, again, some believe that this passage should be interpreted as eschatological, which would mean that the passage is referring to the 70th week of Daniel, when the Lord exercises his righteous indignation against the inhabitants of planet Earth by administering the seven seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments recorded in uh, Revelation chapter 6 through 18. The eschatological interpretation would also mean that this passage is referring to the second advent of Jesus Christ, which ends the 70th week and establishes the millennial kingdom on Earth. There's two returns of Christ to Earth. There's the rapture, Recorded in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. 1 John also talks about, alludes to it, uh, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. So this, this particular rapture is invisible to the world. It's when the church gets its resurrection body. It's a mystery not known to Old Testament saints. That's what Paul says about the resurrection of the church in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. So it's invisible to the world. We're the only ones there. They're going to have to explain why all these people are gone. Okay? That second advent, now by the way, that delivers the church from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul talks about this. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We're not destined for wrath, but for, for getting our salvation perfected at the rapture, the resurrection of the church when we get our resurrection body. The second advent, though, every eye will see him. He'll orbit the earth. We know what that is because of the moonshots we have, right? And satellites. Well, he'll orbit the earth with us. Every eye shall see him, Revelation 1-7. And he will stand on the Mount of Olives from which he ascended in Acts chapter 1. And there'll be a massive earthquake. Nobody's ever seen the likes of it. It'll just flatten the planet. Changing the topography of the earth in Jerusalem. And he comes back with the church to deliver Israel, born-again Israel, that turns to him in faith for the first time as a nation, and he delivers them from the tribulational armies and the Antichrist, false prophet, and Satan and the fallen angels who seek to destroy Israel, wipe her off the face of the earth, as many of you know. So that, the eschatological interpretation, would mean, also mean that this passage is referring to the second advent of Christ, which ends the 70th week and actually establishes the millennial kingdom on earth. Now, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, could also be interpreted as alluding to not only the past historical actions of the Lord in the Old Testament, but also events of the 70th week and second advent. Now, I believe, as I pointed out to you earlier, that these verses are prophetic with some echoes from the past. Let me give you my reasons why. Now, see, I'm giving you my reasons why. I'm just, just because I say it doesn't mean it's right. I don't care who the stature of the pastor is or who he thinks he is or maybe he's great, but no pastor is perfect. The writers of Scripture were perfect under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is perfect because he's God. So you have the Holy Spirit in you and you can determine from as we go through this, is Bill full of baloney or he's off there or, I, or I'm agreeing with him, whatever. That's your choice. You are responsible for what you put in your head. Okay? Same with me. So, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, could also be interpreted as alluding to not only the past historical actions of the Lord in the Old Testament, but also events of the 70th week and second advent. So, I believe again, these verses are prophetic, 
eschatological, but also echoes from the past. How do I know this? Well, first of all, let's start off with this. This is indicated by the fact that Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, asserts that God comes from Teman, which refers to a prominent city of Edom. Do you remember we studied this? Remember? Obadiah? Right. So, consequently, the first statement in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, echoes Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3. Why? Because it asserts that the Lord comes from Edom with his garments covered in the blood of his enemies, which will take place at the second advent of Christ. Very important. So look at, uh, you hold your place. Well, first of all, look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3. God comes from Teman, this is the Net Bible, the sovereign one from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the sky and his glory fills the earth. We want to look at this. God comes from Teman, the sovereign one from Mount Paran. The NIV, again, another excellent translation, but they lean more toward the historical. It says there, for the revel, it says in, um, I get that? Okay, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why. All right. Verse 3. God came from Teman. I don't know how it gets to chapter 2. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. Okay? So, let's look at Isaiah. Hold your place. Go to Isaiah 63. What a great passage this is. This is fantastic. So, actually, as I alluded to a little while ago, in this Divine Warrior song, we're actually tracking the military movements of Jesus Christ at his second advent. A lot of us are going to be talking about that. So look at Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. <coughs> Isaiah 63, verse 1. Hopefully my voice is not too bad. I, I kind of sound like Rod Stewart. I, I, I like some of Rod Stewart stuff, you know. I wish I could sing like Rod Stewart. Isaiah 63, 1. Who is this coming from Edom? From Basra, with his garments stained crimson. Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of treading the winepress? Look, he says, and it sounds like Revelation 19, doesn't it? I have trodden the winepress alone. He doesn't need anybody's help. He's doing this himself, defeating his enemies. Remember, the God who spoke the universe, the time, man, space continuum, into existence with just the word, is going to do this. And that's your God. So I think he can bring in the money to pay your phone bill, okay? Or put your kids through college. So you got to watch out what they're teaching them in college, you know. I have trodden the wine press alone from the nations no one had was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spatted my garments and I stained all my clothing. So Habakkuk 3, as I said before in that previous point here on the board, back it up. Habakkuk 3.3 asserts that God comes from Teman, and, which refers to a prominent city of Edom. We also see consequently that this verse echoes Isaiah 63, 1-3. Why? Because it asserts that the Lord in Isaiah 63 comes from Edom with his garments covered in the blood of his enemies. And that's going to take place at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Also, we see that Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3, records God coming from Teman, as we read, with blood on his garments, which has never happened in history. When does that happen in history? 
But it will happen at the second advent of Christ. We know that from Revelation 19, 13, and 15. Also, another more support of my, my interpretation of this passage. Habakkuk 3.3 teaches that God's splendor covers the heavens and his glory fills the earth, which has never happened in history, but will literally take place during the second advent, according to as we just read in Isaiah 63.3, and Matthew 24 verses 27 through 30, and Revelation 1-7. Uh, hold your place, look at Revelation chapter 1. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. I wrote a song on this. Every eye shall see him. Revelation 1-7. Revelation 1-7, look, he is coming with the clouds. Which, by the way, coming in the clouds in Scripture always talks about the presence of deity. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. They'll mourn for him. The Jews will mourn for him that repented and trusted in him for what their forefathers did to him at Calvary. And there'll be those who will mourn for him because he's coming to judge them and they've been fighting him and had unrepentant about it their whole lives and now he's coming to judge them and no longer will they say pie in the sky. And that pie, that pie ain't going to taste too good when he gives it to you. Okay? He's pouring out his wrath. Also, we see that furthermore, that Habakkuk 3.4 mentions the Lord's brilliant appearance before the human race, which has never happened in history, but will at the second advent of Jesus Christ, as can be seen in Matthew 24, verses 27 through 30. Let's go there now. Go to Matthew 24. So as it says, it, and while you're turning there, if you look on the board... It says in Habakkuk 3, 4, his splendor, the Lord's splendor was like the sunrise. His rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. So let's go to Matthew now. Chapter 24. Now, remember, if, if, you, if you, as you go in there, remember at the very beginning of the whole passage, the pericope, it says in Matthew 24, 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came in privately saying, privately saying tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, they're Jews, believers, and they're expecting the kingdom, and he's going to tell them about it. The rapture, he doesn't talk about it until John 13 through 17, the upper room discourse. Okay? He alludes to it in Matthew 16, upon this rock I shall build my church, right? So he's talking them in context about what's going to lead up to the second advent and the second advent. It's related to Israel talking to Jewish believers, but he hasn't talked about the church yet. He hasn't gone, he hasn't, this isn't the night before he goes to the cross. So keep that in mind. So it says in, in Matthew 24, verse 27, Jesus says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Ah, one of the things I loved about Iowa, you could see the horizon forever. I lived in Massachusetts my whole life up to that point, and it was like, 
you got trees and everything. It's beautiful. New England's great and everything. But when I saw, first time I saw, I was like a week when I got there, and I'm sitting in a, and they had me in a, in a uh, which was pretty cool, um, in a farmhouse, old farmhouse, you know. And uh, it was fun when they picked the corn and then all the mice came in to visit me. So I learned to love the house cats that are other, the, 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 the farm cats around the area because I'd feed them the mice after, you know, I got them on the, and the thing. So it was all, they got me out of there after that because it was so infested with them. Anyways, so I'm sitting out there and I had this little, you know, grill and I, I threw a T-bone on there. That was when I could eat T-bones and not gain weight. I'm eating T-bones, I'm drinking a glass of wine and, I, you know, and there it comes, the squall line. Big thunderstorms coming and I could see it coming up over the horizon. I never saw that message. He's like, holy, this is the end of the world. The Lord's coming back now. And I said, where's the rapture, Lord? Let me get out of here. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. But I remember at night, the thunderstorms. We had one year, electrical storm was unbelievable. And all I could think is this passage, lightning coming one, one across the sky, from one end of the sky to the other. So he says, in verse 29, he says, immediately after the distress of those days the tribulation portion of the 70th week, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Isn't that something? He will appear in the sky. So that is telling you that when I said that point here on the board about Habakkuk 3.4, it mentions Habakkuk 3.4, the Lord's brilliant appearance before the human race. That's another indication that Habakkuk 3.4 is prophetic. Furthermore, Habakkuk 3.4 asserts that the Lord will outwardly display his power to the human race, which has happened actually many times in the human race, in, in, in human history, excuse me, such as in the case of the ten plagues administered by the Lord against Egypt to deliver the Exodus generation from bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. However, the Lord will outwardly, bodily display his power in human history during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ. That passage in Matthew 27, 24, verses 27 through 31. And of course, the big one, Revelation 19, 11 through, and through tw uh, chapter 20, verse 4. You could throw in uh, Zechariah 14 in there if you want and also Zechariah chapter 12. So then, Habakkuk 3.5 asserts that plague goes before God and pestilence marches right behind him, which has also happened in history with the ten plagues of Egypt. However, however we see that plagues and pestilence will be included in the seven seal, trumpet and bowl judgments, which will be administered by the Lord to the inhabitants of planet Earth during the 70th week, that's Revelation 6-18, as well as the second advent of Christ. Zechariah 14, 12 talks about plague and Revelation 19, 11 through Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Another indication that Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 15 is prophetic is that Habakkuk 3, 6 asserts that the Lord will take his battle position and shake the earth, which has never taken place in history, but will at the second advent of Christ. If you look at uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, and you look, at verse, uh, you look at verse 6, it says on the board, he stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. Uh, let's look at it in the, the, uh, the Net Bible. <coughs> he takes his battle position and shakes the earth. 
With a mere look, he frightens the nations. I was watching the outlaw Josie Wales on television the other day a little bit. I love I loved the old Clinton Eastwood boys, the spaghetti westerns, you know? All he had, told you how great actor he was, all he had to do was do the look. You know? So when somebody cuts me off and we're at the stop sign, you know what I do? I go like this. <laughs> and with a cigar in my mouth. No, I don't do that. But, <laughs> but that, that's Clinton. He just gave you a look. Guess who's going to give a look? He takes his battle's position and shakes the earth. With a mere look, he frightens the nations. The ancient mountains disintegrate. The primeval hills are flattened, and he travels on the ancient roads. So again, another indication that this Habakkuk 3, verses 3 to 15, is prophetic is that Habakkuk 3, 6, as they said, asserts that the Lord will take his battle position and shake the earth, which has never taken place in history, but will at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Also, Habakkuk 3, 6 also asserts, as we just read, that the Lord at his arrival will frighten the nations with just a mere look, which has never taken place in history. When does he come down on the earth and with a look? All right? We didn't see him in the first advent doing that. He didn't look at anybody and scare the heck out of anybody. When did he do that? It was a different, it was different, different he was doing something, trying to save the world with, the, with, his, with his death on the cross, right? So he's, he, here it's saying he looks at them. That didn't happen in the Old Testament that he came down and looked at the nations and they scared out, out of their minds? When did that ever happen? Well, you do know he comes back to the earth at the second advent, right? That's when it happens. So at his second advent, the Lord Jesus Christ will bodily come to planet earth to destroy his enemies, as we noted, and will bodily look, look upon his enemies to destroy them. And it won't be the Clinton look, it'll be the Jesus look. <laughs> also, Habakkuk 3, 6, as we read, asserts that the ancient mountains will disintegrate, which has never happened in history. When does that happen? It's going to happen in the second advent. Habakkuk 3, 6, we also read, asserts that the Lord at his arrival will travel ancient roads, which has never happened in history, except during the first advent, and will take place at the Lord's second advent, according to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through 16. Look at Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11. And I'll start you off at verse 10. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. <coughs> Isaiah eleven ten. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. At that time, a root from Jesse will stand like a signal flag for the nations. Nations will look to him for his guidance, and his residence will be majestic. Talking about Jesus, of course. At that time, the sovereign master will again lift his hand to reclaim the remnant of his people from the lands of Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the seacoast. He will lift a signal flag for the nations. He will gather Israel's dispersed people and assemble Judah's scattered people from the four corners of the earth. This is where he's bringing them back from being dispersed through the Antichrist uh, persecution. Verse 13, Ephraim's jealousy will end and Judah's hostility, hostility will be eliminated. There'll be, remember, there's not going to be a... He's talking about Ephraim was often used for the northern kingdom. Okay, So there's not going to be any civil war with Israel at that time. They'll be united. 
So Ephraim's jealousy will end, and Judah's hostility will be eliminated. Ephraim will no longer be jealous of Judah, and Judah will no longer be hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the Philistines' hills to the west. Together they will loot the people of the east. They will take over Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be their subjects. We studied this in, in Obadiah, that the faithful remnant that's back in, in Israel will join Jesus and defeating their enemies. Okay? Remember, there's a freedom fighters in the city of Jerusalem that will be there all the way to the second advent that fight Antichrist. Then it says in verse 15, Then the Lord will divide the gulf of the Egyptian sea, and he will wave his hand over the Euphrates River and send a strong wind, and he will turn it into seven dried up steam, uh, streams and enable them to walk across in their sandals. There will be a highway heading, uh, leading out to Assyria for the remnant of his people, just as there was for Israel when they went up from the land of Egypt. So we see that another indication that Habakkuk 3, verses 3 to 15, is prophetic, is that verse 6 of Habakkuk 3 asserts that the Lord will take his battle's position, and well, that's not what I want to talk to you about. <laughs> what we want to talk about is Habakkuk 3, 6 uh, asserts that the Lord at his arrival will travel ancient roads, which has never happened in history, except during the first advent, and will take place at his second advent, according to Isaiah 11, 10 through 16. Then, here's an interesting one, Habakkuk 3, 11. Go back to Habakkuk 3. Look at verse 11. Hopefully you held your place. Habakkuk 3, 11. The sun and the moon, I'm reading from the Net Bible here, I'll read for the NIV in a sec. The sun and moon still stand still in their courses. The flash of your arrows drives them away. The bright light of your lightning quick spear. All right? NIV. They have, in verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in the heavens. Notice the past tense stood. At the glint of your flying arrows and, and the lightning of your flashing spear. So, in Habakkuk 3.11, the sun and the moon, as we see, are described as standing still in their courses. And that has happened, actually, in the days of Joshua, if you recall. But it will also take place at the second advent. We know that from Zechariah chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, and Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. So that's very interesting here. So uh, look at, uh, go to Zechariah now, chapter 14. I'm going to be working you here a little bit. Zechariah chapter 14, look at verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder, speaking of Jerusalem, will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured and the houses ransacked and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, the second advent, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my holy mountain, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come with all his holy ones with him. On that day, there'll be no light, no cold or frost. There'll be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When the evening comes, there will be light. So 
we see here that another indication, another indication that saw, uh, Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 15 is prophetic and speaking in the 70th week of Daniel and second advent of Christ is Habakkuk 3, 12, which asserts that the Lord at his arrival will furiously stomp on the earth and angrily trample down the nations. Uh, if you go back to Habakkuk chapter 3, look at verse 12, it says, I want you to look up on the board, in wrath you strode the earth, and in anger you thrust the nations. Uh, we see that uh, the that Bible says you furiously stomp on the earth, and you angrily trample down the nations. So, this has never taken place in history, but it will during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Jesus Christ. Now, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses thir- uh, chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 13 also describes the Lord marching out to deliver his people, which is a reference to Israel in this context, and that's never happened in history. He marches out bodily on the earth to deliver Israel. It's happened figuratively, not bodily. However, he will do this at his second advent, as we just read not too long ago in Isaiah 63.1. Did we not? He comes marching. Lastly, Habakkuk 3.13 asserts that the Lord, at his arrival, strikes the leader of the wicked nation, laying him open from the lower body to his neck. When does that ever happen? Look at, look at that passage. Look at it says in, um, in verse 13, back in 313. Again, I'm reading from the Net Bible here. You march out to deliver your people, to deliver your special servant. That's it. He's speaking of Israel. We'll, when we get to this, I'll tell you why. You strike the leader of the wicked nation. When did he ever done that in history? What leader are we talking about? When has he ever laid open a leader from the lower body to the neck? Salah. Uh, the, the NIV, it says, it says, you came out to live your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot, Salah. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us. So we see here that this has never happened in history. Now, as we noted, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15 is not only prophetic, but it also echoes the mighty acts of the Lord and the Old Testament on behalf of the nation of Israel. So, Stop here for a second. So when Antichrist, back up to the, for a second, I'll make this clear. What he's talking about there, when it says, and I'll, I'll use a net Bible's translation, I like it better. You strike the leader of the wicked nation. You lay him open from the lower body to the neck, Salah. Okay? He's talking about the Antichrist. When does this ever happen that he's done this bodily to somebody? And take his own weapon. Pierce the heads of the, his warriors with a spear. Okay? So... This has never happened, but it will happen at the second advent of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ kills the Antichrist. Look at, uh, go to Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation 19, 19. Revelation 19, 19, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. The beast there is talking about the Antichrist. There's a second beast in Revelation 13, that's the false prophet. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to do battle with the one who rode the horse and with his army. Now the beast was seized, the Antichrist, along with him the false prophet who performed the signs on his behalf, a signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. Both of them were thrown alive in the lake of fire. When he's talking about grabbing them, remember we just talked about he kills them. Talking about the souls here. They get thrown in the lake of fire. Okay? The others were killed by the sword that extent that's war that extended from the mouth of the one 
Jesus Christ who wages the war, who rode the horse, and all the birds will gorge themselves with the flesh. That's the great feast that God has prepared for those birds. So, we see also that the reference to the Lord's splendor and coming from Teman and Mount Paran echoes Deuteronomy 33, verse 3, which asserts that the Lord revealed himself to Israel from Mount Seir, which is a reference to Edom, and his splendor appeared to Israel from Mount Paran. The reference to the Lord's displays of power in Habakkuk 3.4 would conjure up the image of the Lord destroying Egypt with the ten plagues. And the reference to the plagues going before the Lord in pestilence and marching right behind him echoes the Lord striking Egypt with the ten plagues again. And the reference to Cushan and Midian in Habakkuk 3.7 would allude to the Lord's past actions on behalf of Israel. Why? Because these two nations resided on either side of the Red Sea. Habakkuk 3.8, as we read, spoke of the Lord being mad and angry with the rivers enraged at the sea. And uh, that would be an allusion to him smiting the Nile River when delivering the Exodus generation from Egypt and Pharaoh, as well as the Red Sea and the Jordan River which, when bringing Israel into the Promised Land. And the shaking of the mountains in Habakkuk 3.10, we read, would conjure up the images of God in the Old Testament shaking Mount Sinai when he appeared to Moses Right? And Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. The sun and the moon standing still could also be a reference to Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, when the Lord delivered the, the Amorites into Israel's hands under Joshua, that great passage. However, there are several statements, and we'll close with this. There are several statements in the back of chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, which have absolutely no allusion to, the act, to an act of the Lord on behalf of Israel in the Old Testament. For instance... Where has the Lord's splendor covered the skies and his glory filled the earth, which is mentioned in Habakkuk 3.3? Also, when have the ancient mountains disintegrated? And when, the, when have the primeval hills been flattened in the Old Testament, as they will be, do, will be during the 70th week of Daniel? We know that from Revelation chapter 6, verse 14. And in Revelation 16, talks about the mountains being flattened. When did the Lord in the Old Testament personally and bodily, march out to deliver Israel while striking the leader of a wicked nation, laying him open from the lower body to the neck, as will be the case at Jesus Christ at his second advent when he kills the Antichrist to deliver Israel. Therefore, what I will conclude with this, and you make your own decision, I believe that Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15 is prophetic. Speaking of the events of the tribulation portion of Daniel 70th week, when the Lord exercises his righteous indignation against the inhabitants of planet Earth by administering the seven-sealed trumpet bowl judgments recorded in Revelation 6-18. It's also speaking of the prophetic events of the second advent of Christ when he will destroy the tribulation armies, have Antichrist and the false prophet uh, thrown in the lake of fire and imprison Satan and his fallen angels, his evil spirits, fellow evil spirits, for a thousand years, Revelation 20, verses 1-3. And ultimately, all this is to establish his millennial reign on the earth, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. So my conclusion is, and you have to make your own decision, I believe it's eschatological primarily, primarily prophetic with allusions to the Old Testament. And why is this important for, the, for, for Habakkuk and the faithful remnant of Judah that's about to have their nation destroyed? It gives them hope for the future. I always see this in the prophets. 
Yeah, this, I'm going to judge the nation, but I'm, this, i got a future for the nation. I haven't given up on Israel. I never will forgive up, give up on Israel. The new covenant promises that. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 31. What about us? Well, <laughs> you know that we're the bride of Christ, and you know we'll be coming back with him then. When he does all this, should give you encouragement. We have the victory. We're in union with a person who is the omnipotence to destroy his enemies like nobody's ever seen before in history and imprison Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. That's your God. As you deal with your problems and difficulties, we deal together we deal with our problems and difficulties here in the devil's world. We're victorious. We're more, as Paul says, we're more than conquerors. So rejoice. And if you go through undeserved suffering, if you go through trials and tribulations, you have the omnipotence, the same omnipotence that's going to destroy Satan and the fallen angels and the tribulational armies and Antichrist and the false prophet. The same omnipotence that Jesus is going to use and is used in the Old Testament destroying the nation of Egypt with the ten plagues as the same power that you are having at your disposal through faith in God's word. Faith appropriates the omnipotence of God. That, is the, that will give you the power to overcome temptation and to endure whatever adversity God puts you through. You know what? It is when you glorify God. And are we not here to do that? Yes. Yes. And this is the type of glorifying God that goes to overcomer believers, winner believers, who get rewards and decorations at the Bama seat in addition to the resurrection body, Revelation 2 and 3. Our life is a lifestyle of power, he told Timothy, before he got executed, Paul. 2 Timothy 1.7, we we're supposed to have a lifestyle of power and wisdom. We should not be timid and afraid of anything, ever. You and I are victorious. We're conquerors. Look forward to the future as you go through things. God wants you to look back at you, to look to the future. It motivates us to live in a manner consistent with who God made us to be. And it gives us the, the motivation to persevere through whatever God puts you and I through. We got the power, that same power, that's going to destroy his enemies at his second advent. We have that power at our disposal now. All about volition. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to take this book? You know? You're going to take it? You're going to do something with it. Put it in your head. Think it. Man does not live on word, bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of his mouth. There it is. That's going to change your life. That can turn a wicked sinner. The power of God's word can turn a, the gospel, can turn a power, turn a wicked sinner at war with him into somebody who loves him and adores him and will go to death to serve him and do his will. That's the kind of people we want to be. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this lesson be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. <laughs> I don't know if I should sing, I don't know. I th you're dismissed, I'm gonna let you go. I'm not gonna take the chance. You might go, whoa, what is that? <laughs> <coughs> Thank you.